How do I sound? I'm eating wings right now. <laughs> I can, you can, we can hear you eating the wings. I can hear <laughs> ruffling, but I think you can, I can get hear, away with it. I, I can hear the ruffling of wings beating in your mouth, but <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> we'll, we'll get away with it somehow. Anyhow. All right. I'm no longer eating wings. <laughs> <laughs> It is time to tune up the band and get down with the sickness, for it is another episode of the Sweet Chinwag Podcast. I am Sam, always alongside Dan and Reardon as we continue our journey for the wacky world of pro wrestling. Good afternoon, chaps. How are you doing today? It is a it is officially autumn time because it is miserable outside. And I love oh, it. Oh, it is horrible, it is cold outside, it is all the worst bits of British weather. And yes. for some bizarre reason, I'm the only one who's enjoying it because I can't stand summer in this country. Uh... See, I would be, I would be okay with it if I didn't have to keep going in and out of my house today. Yeah. I oh, that's even worse. I am not. I have provisions to last me until the crisis is over. I'm not doing it. Do you still have enough ice cream? That's the question, Raiden. I do! <laughs> I've got haagen thanks to um... Oh, hell thanks, yeah! Thanks, thanks to getting some Chinese. So I have a, like, I still got like at least three quarters of it ready to be eaten. I'm fine. To quote you, Raiden, it's so beautiful. Ah, yes. Ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's amazing how much stuff becomes meme shit. All right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Between our social circle, yes, absolutely. Oh, man, it's been a busy week, old week for me, uh, but one that I have found very, very awesome, being able to work yet again on another video with Joseph. But this is the very first video I've done that's a very, it's, that's a full-length video. Uh, and I'm really pleased with the end result. I'm look. I'm so looking forward to people seeing this on public release. And I'm genuinely was genuinely surprised by the amount of people that were excited from it. By you know, Kevin Koo, Daniel Macabe, uh, Daniel Garcia. They're all looking at it and they're all very excited for it as well. And you know the thing that blew my mind, the Tiger Driver guys retweeted that video. Hell yeah! <laughs> so as I said, awesome. <laughs> I am one step closer to Senpai J. Rose noticing me. We're almost there, boys. Almost Just there. the plan the entire time. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was to infiltrate Tiger Driver and try and see if we can get in with X3 and Christian as well. Playing the long game. Yes. <laughs> so, as ever, we give you this podcast thanks to those lovely people over at SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and forever pending other podcasting platforms. You know, guys, if we at the Sweet Chinwag podcast all agree that black lives matter, but you know what also matters? That we are pending and always, always will be pending. <laughs> Hell yes. Very apropos as well. I appreciate that one. You know really. it. So, oh man, really excited for this month because, you know, to celebrate UK Black History Month, we are shining the spotlight on the greats 
in black professional wrestling. And before we get on to the very first episode of Black History Month, we're going to head on over, say hello to Dan. Hopefully he's not eating any more chicken wings. And visit no, it's okay. This... I only got... <laughs> As anyone from South London will know it, the phrase free wings and chips. Ah, yes. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> Damn, son. <laughs> I need chicken wings now. Anyway. Yeah, uh... I want to make some of those now. Damn it. <laughs> Before I get more hungry, let's visit Dan yeah. for this week's wrestling news. Dun, 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 dun. Wrestling news. So let's get into it. And um, so for this little bit of wrestling news, especially for the start of this month, uh, I want to talk about something that um, I've been super excited to see, um, and also seeing the growth of it, which is the hashtag Black Wrestling Draws. You could say movement or the hashtag or however you want to phrase it. But effectively, this was a hashtag started to help give attention to matches featuring either predominantly featuring or solely featuring black wrestlers uh, on major television wrestling shows. Yeah. Uh, so one of the initial starts of it was for lots of the matches between black wrestlers on AEW Dark and Dark Elevation. Uh, but also slowly expanded itself out to include Dynamite and also include uh, WWE, NXT, uh, and even ROH and some of the kind of high-scale independent matches as well. Yeah. And this has been fantastic to see, Mm -hmm. um, especially because it does have a demonstrable visible effect. And it's so important and so fulfilling for me to see yeah this level of community behind wrestling um and i know people are kind of decrying it and being like oh why do we need to do this or why do we need to bring it down to a hashtag or you know whatever but you know things like people genuinely talking about like you know why isn't this match on dynamite why isn't this match here why isn't this here why isn't this person here Hmm. um and it kind of sparked up with me after a recent tweet thread that a lot of people have seen which was kind of saying like AEW doesn't have any black wrestlers that they could consider main event Hmm. which i think is stupid Hmm. Uh, because there's someone that's could quite easily be put there, and his name is Powerhouse Hobbs. Yes. Um, but a lot of this as well came from uh, another tweet in the thread where he said, it will probably take AEW about three years to have a black main eventer, which to me doesn't make sense because they brought in Daniel Garcia and 2.0 on basically zero context. Mm. <laughs> Especially Arthur 2.0 basically had a joke of a run in NXT. Yeah. And have been able to stick them at the top of the company and no one's lost, no one's said anything otherwise. Yeah, like Daniel Garcia has main evented Rampage on, on a number of occasions. So I just find that it's just such, it's such a moot point to say that. Like, I could imagine anyone on the AEW roster right now who could main event a Rampage or Dynamite and actually come off looking like a million dollars. Like, gosh, first name pops into my head. I wouldn't mind seeing Powerhouse Hobbs. I wouldn't mind seeing Dante Martin being in the main event. Yeah. 
I mean, but even still as well, you can look to people like, for example, I know he's injured right now, but like Ricky Starks could easily have been a solid main eventer for AEW months ago. Oh, yeah. Like, honest to goodness, that man is a lightning in a bottle. And once that, oh, once yeah. that bottle opens, man, they're having a once in a generational <laughs> talent there in Ricky Starks. And that's the, that's, that's the thing, really. And people were like, oh, well, I guess if they got Gresham or I guess if they got that. But it, it's it's a redundant point because there's no point taking, you know, specifically taking talent from somewhere else. Yeah. Because then what all you're going to do is then people could be like, oh, RH doesn't have any of this person. And I'm like, there's no point taking someone from one place to another just to say, oh, we're meeting a criteria. Mm. Yeah. Which also dismisses the fact of R the fact that ROH have uh, Shane Taylor. Yep. Who could who is incredible. But like they've got all these people in here now, and also with AEW recently signing Lee Moriarty, who is certified. Like oh. genuinely right now certified. They I know they've got him on dark and stuff, but he is re- he is ready for that level. Yeah, like genuinely i'm so so excited and i've been so happy to see the rate of growth that lee's been going through this year like i called him my favorite breakout star of last year he's honestly in the top three now of my favorite wrestler of the year he's just been having match great match after great match after great match (laughs) even like though during dark matches though like on AEW dark even though they've been like slowly like slightly more condensed than his stuff on the indies he's still showing how good he bloody is no and that's the thing and I just don't get this like narrative of like, oh well, it would take them at least three years, because it it always for me becomes the most prescient reminder about the nature of what wrestling is. Yeah, which yeah. is that wrestling is unique as an industry because you can kind of tell people who they should support. Yeah, I mean, it's- so whenever mm. people have been like, oh. I don't think this person's good enough or this person's not a believable champion. But then I kind of always think, but that's the job of the company yeah, to make someone them. believable. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's like, the uh, point. That's their job. Like, like the, the job of the company is to say, hey, look, this person, this person is good enough and you can support them and say like, hey, look, they could be the champion. Hey, here's the person that you should like. Mm. That kind of thing. Yeah. And so it always seems a bit moot to me when people are like, oh, well, it'll probably take about three years. And I'm like, no, you could probably just take someone and get people. You can take someone and get people behind them and it not take three years. I think that's been a very good uh, positive point when it comes to AEW is that they don't, I guess in a sense, they don't ignore that momentum building with a certain um, performer. If anything, no. they'll tra- they'll take it and try to nurture it. And if it works, it'll be- it'll work. And if it doesn't, they'll still again, they we, won't we, we throw can... them down. They'll still build it up as best as they can. Because we can point to Dante Martin, who was brought in just for like a multi-man match, and yep. then he became, and then everyone was like. Oh my god, this kid's really good. By the way, if I could have Dante Martin's knees, I'd very much appreciate it. Yes. <laughs> um, but they're like, okay, well, we'll get him in here as well, and he can like add a, he can like add a space. And the next thing you know, he's being featured on Dynamite pretty regularly, and you know for good reason because people want to see him. Yeah, I mean, look at the fan momentum behind Jade Cargill as well. Yeah. Mm. 
Oh, is that what we're calling it? <laughs> All right, the fans <laughs> simping over Jade Cargill. Yeah. Let's 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 not lie to ourselves, shall we? Look, let's not deny the influence of the horny, right? But <laughs> especially for Rick. Like, mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> who am I kidding? For everyone. <laughs> Like, you're not wrong, though. That's the thing. <laughs> you're not incorrect. You're not incorrect. But, like, let, <laughs> but. you know, it, it's, it, it just seems so redundant to me when people are like, oh, it'll probably take about three years. And I'm like, no, there's no time to wait anymore. There's no need yeah, to just, wait. Just get on with it, frankly. Just do it. Could you imagine, right, if WWE was there and if someone brought in Brock Lesnar, like, in, like, 2002, and, like, well, it'll probably take about three years to get to where he needs to be. Yeah, he came in night after WrestleMania 18, and by some yeah. time, he was WWE Undisputed Champion. So, come on. Yeah. Like... Sheamus was, was in the main roster 90 days before he became WWE Champion. So, come on. Like, it's really? Like, you don't need... You, I don't get where... I mean, I kind of get where... I kind of understand where this narrative of what it's going to take about three years comes from. Yeah. Which is yeah. a... Uh, a little bit of the uh, the latent effect of well, you know a little bit of latent effect of a certain word, mm. um, and like obviously part of doing this month as well is pointing out this industry's historic issue uh, in regards to race because <laughs> yeah. it cannot be denied. Yep. Um, but like I said, there there are so many great black wrestlers out there for example if you want to know any of them go out and look at the bwi 500 yeah the top 500 black wrestlers across the world it just puts into perspective just how incredibly talented some of some of the wrestlers that are going today are it's just on a whole other level because that's including people you know in the u.s it's including people in the UK, so for example, I think both, uh, I think Tayonga and Rio both made the top 200, and they're pretty much solely working in the UK. Nice. Um, and you know, there's so many more amazing talents out across the American Indies as well. There's a whole world of people um, to take. And hell, like, let's look at the year that, like, for example, Bobby Lashley has had. Mm. What an incredible year he's had. Yeah. The, the year, the year by this point now for Big E, the year by this point now for Kofi and Woods, yeah, like these are these are people who are performing year in year out and doing everything they need to. You know, it, it is genuinely so impressive to see the quality of talent out there right now. Mm. Yeah. Just makes wrestling so much better. <laughs> it does. It, it genuinely it does. does. I just yeah, when you just like when you really think about it, it's just like I know some people were like, "There's it just everything with it, with it just like oh, there's not enough kind of um, and there's not enough as well as that there needs to be more." And I'm just like, well, if you really dig deep, really dig deep, you can see that there are guys that guys and gals that are so ready. So ready and it's the, it's, it's the it's the thing I've been like people are like oh I don't think there's really enough and I say so my first thing is always okay but ask yourself why that is why aren't there more in major companies yeah yes which is normally a first thing where people kind of start to go oh well um, uh, yeah. yeah but then the second thing I say is all right 
you have Google. <laughs> yeah, yes. you have you have all the information, basically all the information in the world at your fingertips at any one moment. <laughs> if you want to understand why people sing AJ Gray's theme song, go watch YouTube. Go watch Search for him on Google, and then like, you'll understand why. <laughs> like that's like the that's like the first bit. If you're on Twitter, look at independent promotions and see who they're booking. Mm. You know, it's a big conversation we've been having in British wrestling, which is that there are people still going around and seeing cards of solely white wrestlers. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, are we really at that point now? Like, is that where we're, is that where we're still at? Yeah. It, it, and so, like, um, as I had with the thread that was done by uh, Roy Johnson, who's amazing. Yes, big wavy. Shout out. Yeah. And kind of being there and being like, if you know, it shouldn't be at that point anymore. People should still be should be able to see themselves in wrestling. Yeah. And it's like it's crazy to me that like you can still go to companies and then just like, you know, for multiple shows back to back to back, not see a single black wrestler. Mm. Mm. Gosh, um, I'm not. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm. I'm just gonna say it right now. Apart from Roy Johnson and Rampage Brown, I can't think of anyone in the UK that was kind of regularly appearing in Progress. Shane Strickland for a little bit of a time, but he would occasionally pop in and out shortly. Yeah, before but then, but then also WWE. think about how crazy, yeah. how even crazier that statement is, though. Because where yeah. was Progress based? London. Camden, basically. Camden, yeah. yeah, you can't get away with that. That's what I mean. You really it's can't like, get away with that. <laughs> it's like you are based in Camden. You're like north of the river. You're in some of the most multicultural boroughs. And you can't... And you know, and you're still doing that. And like, okay, you know what? I can be there and say there's a lot of things I'm not going to give progress credit for. Mm-hmm. But I will say they have taken steps. Yes. For example, recently booking, I believe it was Mercedes Blaze and Tanga on the same show. Yeah. But like this is a this is like a bridge we should have crossed like ten miles ago. Yeah. Not now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and that and that's really that's really the thing. Um and you know, there's there's so many um, amazing black wrestlers out there, in, especially in the UK right now. Um, my per- personal favorite ones are uh, uh, Warren Banks. Oh, Warren Banks is so good. Uh, he's great. Uh, and then I always get his name wrong. Man like Darius. I, f- I think that uh, I think that is yeah. Man like Darius. Man like Darius. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. He he is he is he is great. Um, absolutely love um, seeing him or seeing him around before, um, and want to go to more shows that that he is at because mm. he's great. So much, so much great energy. I mean, when you call yourself a man like Teresa Durant, oh, I know. Like, <laughs> I mean, moment, to be moment, fair, you should have seen my face when I was like, I just shook my head. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> It's oh, the it, it's the enjoyment of being from London. Yeah, someone's calling himself man like. <laughs> yeah, and you're just like, oh, here we go, here we go. But no, there, like, there, yeah, there's like so many great people out there. Um, 
and also as well, I need a shout out to some um, some really cool people. Um, we've shouted them out before. Body Slam, yeah, uh, over in Denmark in Copenhagen. Michael Finn, Michael Finn. Oh really yes, good. really good wrestler. Mm. So it's like I'm like th- th- there's there's definitely not a shortage of them. They're not in short supply, <laughs> not by any stretch of the imagination. Like there's so many amazing people out there, and you know it's it's about us putting the onus on the companies to say you have to do your bit Mm. yeah so as we said before like like kind of similar when we said about supporting queer wrestling basically show with your money yeah if you're looking at a show and you think and you look at the card and go you know it's it's a it's a kind of a bunch of guys i don't see myself there Maybe if you can look for another show that's fairly local to you, that does do that for you. You know, if there are wrestlers that you like, or you know, black wrestlers that you want to support, you know, you can do the usual things: buy the merch, watch their stuff, share their stuff around. Hmm. All of that exact same stuff as we've recommended with queer wrestling before, and it is, you know. I can't really say how important it is to get behind that. Yeah. Because, mm. again, like, for quite a lot of companies, there are people behind them that won't understand this. Yeah. So we need to, you know, we as fans need to make this abundantly clear and say, you know, you need to listen to us. This is what we want. This is what we want to do. Mm. This is who we want to see. And that's really the most important bit. <laughs> Hell freaking yes. Absolutely. If you re- if you if anyone really wants a good start on it, please try and s- seek out for the culture because it's always a great mm. event during WrestleMania week and one that I always look forward to among, you know, the usual spring breaks, blood sports, all of those cool events that GCW put on. But always, <clears throat> always I do look forward to For the Culture because it's like yeah. the best celebration of black wrestling. And, you know, Two Cold Scorpio is somewhere always on the top of the billing and Two Cold <laughs> Scorpio is fucking awesome. So <laughs> still, to this day, is still fucking awesome. He's awesome, old, and he's still awesome. <laughs> And he would slap me for saying that. Yes, he yeah. Or if he, or you know if he had some chopsticks on him and you and you said anything bad, or if you look at the pork. But uh, yeah, um, I mean I can't agree more with you. And just kind of just it's just kind of nice to finally see that these guys, that guys and gals, are finally getting their time and going like, hey, look, no, we aren't going to be ignored. We're here. And we're still be, we're still playing our craft, and we're still some of the best darn talented people in this um, um, mm-hmm. in this industry. So take notice of us, please. Yes. <laughs> but uh, uh, is there anything else um, that's happened in the news that uh, we want to kind of discuss, or is that kind of what we're going to wrap up on? I think that's the most of it from me. Cool, because I don't want to talk about the draft because it was really annoying. Oh, yeah. Actually, no. One thing about the draft. Hit Row going to SmackDown, which is awesome. Ah, and if anything, I, I like really it. hope Isaiah Swerve Scott 
they see how talented that man is. He's a star. He's got star written all over him. They, they, they better. And they better not split up Hit Row either. But you'll be. I, you'll I be... swear, if they, if they, if they botch Hit Row, um, I don't even know, my guy. <laughs> you know what annoys me even further is that they've split up the New Day again, and Woods, oh. and, Woods and Kofi are on SmackDown now. Oh. Bro, this, come on! This is why we can't have nice things in pro wrestling. <laughs> why do they keep doing this? Why are they so persistent on making making uh are making sure that the new day does not exist? What's the what's the point? <laughs> Okie doke. But with that, it is time to head on over to recommendation corner and have a visit from Reardon. Reardon. I believe you have a recommendation for us, sir. Yes, I do. In honour of UK Black History Month, we will be recommending recommending black creators of all stripes. And seeing as we are addicted to the internet, unfortunately, for all of us. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I would like to recommend the channel FD Signifier, who does various essays on black movies and media. Um, he's a relatively newcomer in terms of my watching, but his stuff is really, really good and thought-provoking. Um, a little worn of warming. He, it's a slightly, um, lower tech. It, it's from, like, you're not going to be seeing any ContraPoints, um, level of, um, level of cinematography, but it is made up for with really, really fascinating... Mm essays specifically on um there is two one that come out and one that keeps getting keeps getting um taken off from youtube so see it then um the most recent one that hasn't been taken off of youtube is what happened to kanye west which apparently is going to be a two-parter which is oh my <laughs> yes oh which, my, is, oh my. which is basically explaining why kanye west matters why his persona matters so much to to black people and also as a fun little thing he describes a lot of stuff as particularly with kanye west in wrestling terms so oh, yeah. Yeah. you're gonna find out as um as in the very first part is talking about in his own description kanye west in his baby face mode oh <laughs> which oh, is me, oh meow and and literally a day ago, uh, at the time of this recording, um, his honest to God, I think probably his masterpiece up until now, what happened to Mike Tyson, which is one of the most, it, it, it's a real thought provoker. I was going to say, about, that's a very loaded question. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And talking about the persona basically everything to do with how a culture will make a Mike Tyson. And it, it does have some content warnings for obvious reasons, but if you can, if you are able to go over those content warnings, honest to God, his masterpiece. Loved it top to bottom. A fascinating, that, that made me think a lot. Oh, man. So... FD signifier is my recommendation. For we will definitely this. tweet that out when the episode Hell goes live yeah. for sure. Yeah, that yeah, sounds yeah. Really awesome, awesome. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I will recommend as well when it does go up on YouTube. 
go watch the five match primer on Lee Moriarty. <laughs> I am self-promoting there. Hey, oh yeah. Hey. <laughs> Who else is going to promote? Exactly. Uh, well, Joseph. Yeah, I know. And he's near ten thousand subscribers. Which, if anything's to go, come by, on, we're almost there, up, boy. I'm almost there. He's going to hit ten thousand. Sam is a draw. Sam is a draw. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to bring that to that much attention to myself. But anyway, nah, you are. <laughs> Let us get on with our first episode in Black History Month. Monty Brown, the great who captured our hearts. So, like we always do with these retrospectives, it always is a good way to start right at the beginning. But before that, chaps, what do you think of Monty Brown? (laughs) Do you want me to start, Rudin? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm trying to find the kind of the right words to put it in there, but I'm going to say, like, the greatest, possibly the greatest thing that never got realized. Mm. Yeah. Like, we were so close, but it just never quite happened. Yeah. And now I, I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, I think I think the thing is, is that when it comes to what ifs in wrestling, I think Monty Brown is like one of the the biggest. Yep. Mm. And, you know, when you talk about that, when you think about the fact of like, you know, I, I'm talking in like greater context here, but like, it's funny that he's like one of the greatest what ifs in wrestling you know, next to like, oh, what if, you know, like The Undertaker never lost the streak or he lost to someone else or like, what if X person never came back or what if X person never left? Yeah. And, you know, in in kind of context, we're talking about a guy who was in like, you know, the second or third company in the US at the time mm. that mm-hmm. like in a way never got, he never actually really got to hold a belt. Which... But that we look on him so fondly and like he is quite possibly like the greatest that never was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Reardon. I had to do a little bit of um, just a little bit of upkeep on Monty Brown because I admit I wasn't very knowledgeable on his You career. weren't a TNA mark. <laughs> yeah, because I wasn't a TNA mark, unfortunately, at this, at this time. But looking it up, it's like, oh, yeah, this is this is. I don't know. I don't know the full details, but this is going to be another Jeff Jarrett is evil, isn't it? Oh, how did you know? Bad spoiler. Oh man, what what gives you that impression? It's only <laughs> TNA in like two thousand and five. <laughs> oh my god! All right then. So before we get into any more spoilers, shall I get going with our journey? Let's get going. Is, is that an ambulance I hear in the, in the in, oh, oh, yonder hill? Oh, it's probably me. Uh. <laughs> All right, South London, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> oh man! All righty then. So let's get on with our retrospective, starting with his early life. Born in Saginaw, Michigan, in 1970, Monty Brown grew up as a big pro wrestling fan. Quoted as saying that he had many posted posters adorning his wall of the greats in the 1980s. 
not much is known about his childhood after this, but what is known is more of kind of when he started attending high school. So he attended Bridgeport High School with hopes of taking up wrestling, but due to the school not having a program there, he took to other sports programs and eventually landed in football, especially after three years as well of, uh, of doing basketball. He became a solid linebacker, which led him to attend college at Ferris State University and played for the Ferris State Bulldogs, where he became an All-American linebacker, breaking and setting several defensive line records. Hell yeah! <laughs> Here's the thing. Brown was so good that he was the very first Bulldog to become both a first-team academic All-American and a first-team All-American. <laughs> Wow. With of course the go this goes without saying that it caught the attention of many team scouts in the NFL. And after graduating, he signed with the Buffalo Bills. He played Oh man, I feel sorry for him for that. <laughs> or was this when the Bills were good? I don't know. This no, was when he the Buffalo Bills. Okay. So he played for the Bills for four years, becoming a reliable linebacker for them, and even making it to the twenty eighth big game now i would say the name of the finals that they have in the nfl but i can't because it's a copyrighted term uh, <laughs> so you know i never actually i never realized that because it's the 20 it makes sense game. but <laughs> hence why you see so many american advertisers calling it the big game instead of yeah you know what? Okay. The super toilet bowl. There we go. The, the if, game if, that so, must not so be like named. if I so if I was for example to say the superb owl, <laughs> maybe you'd get away with it, but I don't know. <laughs> We're not risking the NFL fighting this, okay? I am not. not I am not. Look, the NFL are willing to, were willing to fight people who like recorded a game on a DVR, right? I am not they were still willing to fight people using VCRs, and if you're willing to fight a person that's still using a VCR post like 2012, you're not the kind of you have too much persistence for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm not facing. Sorry the wrath. to anyone who still uses VCRs. Yes, that is that is true. As I said, I am not facing the wrath of Roger Goodell. That's all I'm saying. That is a fair point. Fair, fair, fair. So when his Bills contract ran out in 1995. He signed as a free agent to the New England Patriots. Throughout all of his NFL career, wrestling never left his mind. It's actually fun. In a TNA interview in 2004, he stated that during Super Bowl week... Oh, sorry, I said it. During the big game weekend. Uh, big game weekend. Big game weekend. <laughs> Superb Al. Superb Al uh, weekend for the Bills. While everyone did their own thing, he went to Main Event Fitness, the gym that was owned by Sting and Lex Luger, in the hopes <laughs> of meeting them. What a king! <laughs> wow, amazing. Now, you're going to love this. The reason, in part, to signing with the Patriots was because he would be in close proximity to Stamford, Connecticut, at the offices <laughs> of the WWF. <laughs> you, know, wow. you know what, though? That's actually unbelievable work rate. My guy was so committed to, to like the motive that he was like, "All right, so if I, did, I got, he was playing four D chess." Yes. No <laughs> wonder he made first team academic. You gotta, you gotta be smart <laughs> like, in this business. Like, 
I can't even lie. That's some like Kevin Nash shit. <laughs> it really is. He was like, okay, if I sign for the Patriots, I'll be in New Eng- I'll be in New England, which means I'll be closer to Connecticut, which means the WWF might see me, and then I can get start on wrestling. That's actually unbelievable work rate. I can't even. I respect it. You you can't help but respect it. It's freaking awesome. Uh, but unfortunately, when an ankle injury put Brown on the shelf during his first season with the Pats, he decided right then and there to step away from his football career, even being given lucrative offers to join other teams, and then and then thus instead began focusing on his main passion, professional wrestling. So, from this. Brown went back to his native Michigan with a renewed purpose and sought out training, which saw him be under the tutelage of Michigan legends Dan the Beast Seven and Sabu. I cannot believe that Sabu would train anyone. <laughs> That's yeah. Sab- Sabu as a teacher is like a bit of an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah, like. What's he gonna teach him how to miss? What two like... of what two polar opposites you could have in terms of training to be a professional well, I was, wrestler? Well, I was gonna say because, like Dan Seven, I can get because yeah. obviously you know well-renowned MMA fighter and known professional wrestler. Um, you know, I can understand that because, like, at least Dan Seven could at least teach him like you know, incredibly solid fundamentals mm. Mm. and like all the stuff that you need to like actually, you know, get into working. I'll, <laughs> I, I, the Sabu though, <laughs> it, it's, it's a little bit lost. I mean, I guess to be fair, like Sabu can work. <laughs> yes. When not using that's a not chair. What that's not I was what like, he's known we're not for. using a chair and we're not under the influence. <laughs> Hey, but like, come on, him and RVD are good friends. <laughs> so it's like, aware. you know. <laughs> it's so it's so kind of like it blows my mind, but then again, it makes sense. If you were in Michigan, who are the two yeah. biggest names in Michigan? Well, that's Dan what I Seven, mean. It's like this short of Rob Van Dam, it's those yeah. two. It's like it it, it makes sense. <laughs> Like it, like, like again, it it makes sense that it would be those two, two of the biggest people in Michigan for wrestling. Like I said, the other side of like Rob Van Dam, and then maybe like a couple other people. Mm. Especially without going like the, you know, amateur wrestling route. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I almost want to know what Dan Seven was like as a wrestling coach. Probably ruthless, kind of like probably yeah. probably taught you more kind of amateur wrestling techniques than he did pro wrestling. Um, well, I was yeah. gonna say because I picture him being probably in the vein of like Stu Hart. Oh, yeah, very absolutely. much so. I don't. I do not <laughs> like, see him being like a. I do not see him. I I see him going. This is how you fight. I don't. I don't yeah. see him doing it any any anything else. I really don't. Yeah, working. What's that? <laughs> Uh, so... The only working we do is to work to break someone's arm. Yes, yes. Or in the case of D'Lo Brand, injure him so much that he has to wear that chest guard thing. <laughs> <laughs> so by two thousand and one, 
Monty Brand hit the Michigan scene by force, quickly gaining a lot of momentum and the attention of a startup promotion in Tennessee. <laughs> like, I'll tell you how quick it was. Um, Monty Brand has only has archived two matches before coming uh, to a very notable company that we've talked about on this podcast. That's crazy. Two matches. Yeah. Two he matches. Billed, he was billed, at this point, he was billed just as the alpha male. So, in less than a year, Monty Brown signed with total non-stop action. And this is... I don't care. However many times I hear that acronym broken down, I just think, nah, that's... <laughs> so stupid. It is a Vince Russo invention. I know. Ass. Always, always we'll have to bring that up. It's a Vince Russo thing, because of course it is. Here's how quick Monty Brand came into the fold of TNA. He made his debut on TNA's third weekly pay-per-view episode. So episode three of TNA, he made his uh he's made his debut and made quick work of his enhancement talent opponent uh, in 90 seconds. Uh, Hell yeah. But what impressed wow. people was his mic work and his finisher then his finisher the alpha bomb which was picking someone up in a fall away slam position and then lifting them hoisting them into a power bomb position and dropping them okay but i vibe with that though (laughs) despite a really red hot debut which fun fact he used abyss's theme as his theme music during this time. What? The theme wow. music that would be Abyss's theme he would use here and it, during his Jeez. during this time. I'm okay. All right, we need to chat about this. It's such a like a weird Mandela effect thing, but lo and behold, he did. He um, used the music that would come to be used for Abyss. Yeah. <laughs> Despite all of that, though, he wouldn't stay very long in TNA. After making four more appearances for the company that included an NWA world title match against Ron Killings, Brown would leave TNA soon after. He would cite creative differences in his persona and how TNA portrayed him for his reasoning for leaving. Direct quote, No one knew what my character was about, who I was about, and at the time it was just a new thing for myself and the company. I had different things going on. They had different things going on. I just didn't get the opportunity to let the character flourish. Yeah, no, I mean, that's fair. Yeah. Because uh, apparently, because it's like he was meant to be portrayed as a baby face, but for some reason, the crowd weren't getting into it as much as they should have. And TNA were trying to get him to be more baby face like, but Brown could kind of see that there wasn't, it wasn't working as much as they wanted it to. And, they came to kind of blows on that. And so pretty soon after he left, Brown would go back to the Michigan Indies. He even finally having a match with Colt Cabana and Chris Hero. Ah. Well, now I need to find this expeditiously. Yes. <laughs> I thought so as well when I saw that. Before making a little trip to Canada where he would work under one Scott Damore, who is now kind of hey. the head of, T- of Impact Wrestling. Yeah, he is. Uh, before coming back to TNA in March 2004, which brings us to his second most notable run in TNA. 
Upon returning, he would make very quick work of the insane clown posse, never to be seen again. Oh, TNA. Oh, ICP. TNA. Oh, God. I would quickly start a mini feud with his trainer, Sabu. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. It was this where he firmly established himself as a heel and doubled down on his alpha male moniker, being billed this time from the Serengeti, wearing leopard and tiger print trunks, coming out to a song heavily inspired by Down With yeah. The Sickness. <laughs> it's it's like it's at the point where it's like, it is so close to being it, you're almost there like you could probably get copyright claimed for it. I swear to God, Dale Oliver just ripped off every song. Like, I remember, like, Christopher Daniels coming out to Marilyn Manson's song. DDP literally coming out to Smells Like Teen Spirit instead of the Jimmy Hart ripoff. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, like, they straight up, they were just like, what song is popular now? <laughs> and then how can we get as close to it as possible but not get copyrighted? <laughs> so yeah, a song heavily inspired by David's sickness, even including the oh at the beginning as well. <laughs> like, oh my goodness! Like it, it's genuinely impressive how <laughs> close of a clone they were, and yet, as far as I'm aware, very little ever happened. Very little, actually. That's, that's very odd. You'd <laughs> think that they get. You'd think that would stop immediately. You'd think, but lo and behold, it was a Wild West there in TNA. <laughs> uh, yeah. With all of that work as well, Brown started copying, uh, copying mannerisms of big cat wildlife, like he would scratch kind of the, do scratch the top rope when he was in the when he was in the ring, and most importantly, he would debut a new finisher, the pounce. All right, let's get into this. Uh, so if anyone Look. doesn't know what the pounce is, a quick little Pokedex, the pounce, a deadly looking shoulder block that sends opponents literally flying across the ring. The way it's set up is that Brown shoots his opponent against the ropes and rather than standing still, Brown hits the opposite side of the ropes and then, and then as they meet in the middle of the ring, bam, hits them with a massive shoulder block. Let me just say, right... The pounce always looks better in a more than a four-sided ring. Yes. The six, TNA's mm. six-sided ring made it so much better because it was so much better set up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, and, I, and it's also like there was a different angle you can do That's it. the thing. Like you could get it from multiple angles because like yeah. I remember there was a couple times where he did it where he basically like ran up behind them. Yeah. <laughs> and that looks sick. <laughs> So fucking See, cool. The funny thing about it is that it just looks like the way the pounce works is because it's like the way it's kind of like acted. It is a shoulder block, but it's done like like it's pushing as yeah. well. Yeah. Which is always kind of like a funny thing. It's only until it or like as much as like, you know, all credits to Monty Brown. It was only when it was like Keith Lee when I realized how much that would hurt. Because it's kind of like, when it's kind of like, it just looks like, oh, they just shoved him. No, no, no. He's using like his actual shoulder and then, oh, yeah. Using, and then using like the hands to kind of like maneuver him. Mm. It's such it's a, 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 it's a, a simple yet effective looking move. Yeah. And such a, a, a welcome change of pace from where you'd find a lot of people that had experience in college football or the NFL using the spear. Mm. Yeah, because like the thing I think also like a thing I did like about it was that obviously 
He he hid it in what I would term linebacker fashion. Oh hell yeah! But he straight up is like yeah. leaving his feet to get to like get into. He's like getting low and like pushing up. Yeah, it's he's going so like good. he's going under the arm as well. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's so good. And like I said, when you have like the multiple angles you get with the six sided ring, it always looks so good because it was always like whichever way you're playing it you're always going to kind of be coming in from like a rough angle yeah yeah the ones where the opponents were sent flying and they'd hit the turnbuckle oh oh those look like a car crash nasty (laughs) nasty nasty indeed but it was look it was from this point that brown was finally hitting all of the right notes and one thing that made his star rise was his incredible promo work. Chaps, it cannot go understated just how different and captivating Brown's promos were, and to this day still are. The, I think the thing about his promos is he had a very particular style. Yeah. Which... I mean, basically, the essence of it is just that he was a, a really good talker, as in, like, he really was really good at understanding just little bits about, like, the way he talks and, like, those little bits of interest while you're going through stuff. So he wasn't just, like, you know, like, you know, when most wrestlers are, like, cutting a, a fairly long promo, like a backstage promo, they just do the whole, like, you know, they're, like, doing the whole, oh, I'm going to beat you, da-la-la-la, and you add in a couple bits, a couple digs and whatever. Hmm. The thing with Monty Brown, though, is he, he was kind of unhinged with it. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that would just be, he'd, like, do his own sound effects and stuff. I just, it's what And, I like, moving with, his ho- moving with his whole body. Oh, it's, and, it's, like, mm. some would say he was, like, acting silly, but, like, it's realistic, though. No, yeah. Exactly, exactly. What I love, it's just, like, being able to turn... Uh, being able to go onto the term of the, of the dime to go from unbridled violence to rapier wit and then comparing his opponents to wildlife that could be easily toppled by the alpha male I just loved you just were so captivated by it it's, it's like when I'm there I'm like no one's really done promos like him and I don't think many people have since mm. I mean I definitely get parts of it from people Mm. But they don't kind of capture that essence of like, um, you know, he it, it's almost like when he's doing a promo, he's going through multiple characters. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Three faces of brown. The three faces of brown. It's like it's like it's like he's going through because like I mean, and again, this cannot be understated when Lance Archer got him to do the one for the promo for his match with Moxley. Oh. A, seeing Monty Brown back cutting a promo again, like, warmed my heart to no end. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But also, it was just, like, he was just just going through and just doing all these little bits that just made... And you forget that the promo is, like, a minute and a half long. Yeah. And like I've sat through minute long promos and you think like, oh minute's not that long. But then you did sometimes you do really start to notice it. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's just like you're just there and he's like talking about like, um, oh, you know, like I'm gonna beat you and then it's just like 
doing just like going like going from one thing to the next and there's so much energy and he's so dynamic and like because it's a thing i always tell people about doing speaking in front of people which is that the worst thing you can do is just stand there yeah yeah and so when you're there and you're like actually like moving your whole body of it and like let's not forget whenever he's there and says the stuff for the pounds and he's like doing the full on like leaning back and like straining his voice on it. it's so good because it has so much energy behind it yes it's nigh on perfect for his like his alpha male moniker i've always i always felt my personal favorite parts where would be where during like promos like that would be where he would uh, turn his attention to uh, if it was either Shane Douglas or Scott Hudson and would just threaten them just, <laughs> just out of nowhere he would just threaten Scott Hudson with a steel chair <laughs> but with all of that though it just built to Brown becoming a bona fide star and the fans really took notice I mean all this time despite being a heel he was becoming a fan favorite in the eyes of of uh, TNA fans but during this time he would go on to have notable matches with as I said Sabu uh, BG James DDP Jeff Hardy D'Lo Brown and Ron Killings and from these performances he turned babyface and was quickly positioned to the main event scene which lead brings us to January 2005 at final resolution the constant that was the NWA champion Jeff Jarrett <laughs> was originally yeah. <laughs> that was originally supposed to defend his title against Macho Man Randy Savage oh TNA but Savage pulled out of the event shortly before it was due to take place so in a scramble, a triple threat match was made to determine the number one contender to face Jarrett for the TNA World, or for the NWA World Title, and the, on the same night, Brown made easy work of his opponents DDP and Kevin Nash to win the match and go on to face Jet Jeff Jarrett. Now this was I'm looking like Kevin Nash's quad survived that. <laughs> yeah, true. Drew, I mean, this was looking like TNA were about to strap the rocket on a brand new star. Unfortunately, this is TNA in 2005, and it wasn't going to ever end that way, was it? (laughs) After the long and quite overbooked ending, which saw Jarrett survive the pounce and then hit Brown over the head with a guitar whilst the ref was being distracted by another ref that was knocked out, Jarrett hit three strokes and picked up the three to retain the title. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. The ref was distracted by another ref. The ref, Rudy Charles, was knocked out, and I think it might have been... I can't remember the the other uh, ref's name, but he came into the ring, was distracted, trying to attend to Rudy Charles. Jarrett saw the opportunity and hit a guitar over Brown's head. I was saying slap nuts. <laughs> three strokes and it took him to win now look I know they were trying to make it so that Brand would be kind of booked strong in defeat but after a couple of media appearances on Fox Sport and Sportsnet that went down really well the fans being behind his him and so much momentum why didn't you 
Uh, because Jeff Jarrett. Because Jeff Jarrett. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. is literally that. that is literally, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's kind of boring. I wish there was more of an answer to that. I really, really well, do. So, so it's like, um, as I've said to people before, and as we've established previously on this podcast, uh, at least to us three, Jeff Jarrett is like the Kevin Bacon of wrestling. Yes. Yes. The six degrees so, of Jarrett. That's what I mean. That's why I have that's why I have the, the Jarrett number, which is how how far removed the wrestler is from a match with Jeff Jarrett. Yep. <laughs> like you would go through films for an actor to Kevin Bacon. Yep. It ain't um, much. It ain't no, much. for a lot of people it's surprisingly small. Um and so you always end up in this weird situation where in a way Jeff Jarrett has become the center of the wrestling universe. Mm. What a terrifying sentence. I know. (laughs) (laughs) You know what makes even less sense, though, chaps, about all this? Is that despite everything, despite him getting really over, becoming a fan favorite, mesmerizing people with his moveset and his promo work, not two months later... Brown turned heel during the main event of Destination X, during the main event with DDP versus Jeff Jarrett, to help Jar- Jarrett retain the title. Yeah, but this was when they were... Do- I mean, like... So this is when they were doing the whole thing of, like... You know, it's hard to, it's hard to describe this storyline and make it make sense to people who don't watch wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, there's always this... For some reason in wrestling, there's always this thing about like if there's someone important, some bookers still think if you put someone with them, it makes them important too. Mm. Which only works if you also just like give a feature to that person. Yeah. If they're just there standing next to him, it does nothing. Mm. <clears throat> and the problem is, is that they brought him in and just made him stand there and do nothing against the guy who had cheated to beat him, and so it just makes him look like an idiot. <laughs> Oh, and it absolutely did. I mean, this was during the time of, if I'm remembering rightly, this was during the time of uh, the Planet Jarrett storyline. Yes. With uh, Jarrett Stable. Gents, would you like to know the full list of the members of uh, Jeff Jarrett's stable, Planet Jarrett? Oh, play uh, the music. Let's do this. I'm guessing it probably... I'm trying to think exactly who would have been... You know who would have been around for that time? This is like oh, what, like oh six. This would be oh five, oh six, correct? Oh five, oh six. So, I, mean, I guess a, a young, a young Kazarian. No, would no you like Kazarian. Me to go down the list. Can is I have this... one more guess at someone that might be in there? Go on. Uh, I'm gonna take another. I'm trying. Oh god, I'm trying to remember who it was that used to be with him all the time. <laughs> Sanjay Dutt? No. <sighs> okay. So, the full mem- the full list of members from Planet Jarrett. We have at the top leader of the faction Jeff Jarrett. Mhm. Then it goes Abyss with Father James Mitchell. Okay. Yeah. America's I, I was most- thinking of this, but then I was like, Nah, surely not. <laughs> America's most wanted. The team of Chris Harris and James Storm. Still one of the most over-tagged teams in TNA history. Oh, yeah. Monty Brown. Team Canada. 
I didn't know Team Canada were part of Planet Jarrett. Absolutely, they were. Uh, Petey Williams, oh, right. A1, Eric Young, Johnny Devine, Bobby Roode with Coach Damore was Team Canada. Boy, oh, yeah. that was a team and a half. Kip James, or as we oh. all know him as, yeah. Billy Gunn. Yeah. Mr. Ass, baby. Mr. Ass, baby. Gail Kim. Okay, yeah. Alex Shelley, funnily enough, was doing his paparazzi productions uh, oh. uh, run, which, by the way, I still love the paparazzi productions oh, videos. No, paparazzi productions is based. I don't even care. Anyone who disagrees <laughs> is wrong. Oh, no. That was, especially the, vi- the videos that he did with him and uh, Kevin Dash were fucking amazing. Um, Jackie Gader. The the wife of Charlie Haas, yes, was a member of uh, Planet J. Okay. Scott Steiner. Okay, all right, but S- Scott Steiner, Scott Steiner. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm surprised that Scott Steiner listens to anybody, <laughs> let alone Jeff Jarrett. It's, Indeed. Look, whatever it is, no matter how bad, if it has Scott Steiner, it gets a pass. <laughs> and the most confusing one, and the one I forgot about, Larry Zabisco. The f- who was the on-screen, what? I think, authority figure in TNA at this time. Oh, God. Larry? Larry? Yeah, Larry Zabisco was in TNA. Yeah. Why do I not remember this? Me neither. Yeah, that's I what I'm thinking. about Larry Zabisco in TNA. Uh, okay, you are, you are like, you are our collective wrestling brain. If you've forgotten about it, we've all forgotten about it. When did this happen? Uh, I it don't remember be, it this. It was such a flash of the pan thing, I think, between 2004 and five, just when TNA had gone from doing weekly to monthly pay-per-views. So it's just it's just that bit of my brain about TNA that I completely forgot because I think of that All time right, and I think of then when Jim Cornette became authority figure in TNA. Well, yeah, because I remember that and that was ugh. that was something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he was right into the thick of it and pretty much kind of all the momentum that Brown had built kind of got squandered quite a bit during that storyline i think squandered is a way to put it (laughs) yeah just a wee bit it wouldn't be until kind of like late 2005 that brown would be kind of anywhere near the world heavyweight title um picture again so our breakable in september brown declared his intention to challenge for the title at bound for glory now, I believe it was after defeating Lance Hoyt at Bound for Glory that Brown would yeah. take part in a 10-man gauntlet for the gold match to declare number one contender <laughs> oh, for the TNA. title. But guess what? He eliminated himself from the match by taking himself and Jeff Hardy over the top rope simultaneously. Oh, TNA. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but Brown eventually would end up uh, getting a number one contendership spot at the November Genesis pay-per-view. But Mm -hmm. after an altercation with the newly debuted Christian Cage, Brown would agree to put on his championship title shot in a match against Cage at Turning Point. But he lost the match and and then would lose the championship opportunity in the process. Now, that being said, he did have some good matches with Christian Cage during this He did. He did. He had some really good uh, championship matches. uh, Oh, sorry, matches. It helped solidify my agenda that Christian is like... The superior 90s wrestler yeah I agree. christian's again side note to say christian's really really good and i'm happy for the people that are finally like actually getting to notice it now that haven't already noticed he is very very good yeah 
and again, I don't want people to think that like Monty Brown is any kind of like flash in the pan. He was good. He was really, really. He could put out solid work every time you needed them to and those matches against christian prove it absolutely so it was during this time where brown started to kind of see a little bit of the writing on the wall because it just seemed like they didn't know what to do with him one minute he's with jeff jarrett and then after that match with cage he's back with reforming his alliance with jeff jarrett um some reason storyline being that they're bitter towards tna management but it nothing would come understandable I, mean, I was gonna say i think that was most people in tna at that point yeah. <laughs> uh one thing i one thing of note that i will have to say is that during this time during this alliance uh monty brand once posed as sting in full makeup uh and for some reason he had a baby stroller with him which i can't i still to this day were just like what but then again all right it checks out because you know i guess maybe this is tna in See- 2006 <laughs> The point when you're there and you go, so Monty Brown was uh, in costume as Sting. <laughs> I feel like there's something that doesn't quite connect with that, and I can't tell what it is. <laughs> Me neither, man. Me neither. So shortly after Christian Cage would win the TNA World, uh, sorry, the NWA World Heavyweight Championship from Jeff Jarrett, Brown received a shot at the Destination, Destination X pay-per-view, but didn't win in, again, a really solid match. <laughs> but it was shortly after this that Brown had to go away to go uh, take a, to get surgery on his knee. He returned in April 2006 and then had a short feud with Rhino and Samoa Joe. If now, if anyone's seen this promo during the pay-per-view, I think it might have been... I can't remember what one it was, but it was the one where they used too much pyro and had to evacuate the studio because it almost got set on fire. <laughs> and to, bit, to kind of, like, uh, keep going and to bide some time, Monty Brand cut an impromptu promo outside of Universal Studios, and I remember calling... He called Rhino, I think, a, a, a hippo-elephant crossbreed and samoa joe fat joe <laughs> i will i oh god i have to be this guy i have to be this guy don't call rhino a hippo that's too accurate <laughs> hippos are heroes hippos are i think the most or if not one of the most deadliest animals in all of africa oh no yes. hippos 100 percent have black air force energy yes yeah they are they are literally the most dangerous like Steve Irwin, may he rest in peace, said the only animal he'd never fuck with was a hippo. Yeah. You don't, like, you don't call someone a hippo. Oh, it, my God. It, it's, again, we're like, I know we're on the tangent here, but, like, I'm going to continue it because that's what I do best. Um, <laughs> it always, I always remember my friend just being like, yeah, hippos are really, really dangerous, and the reason is because they share this, they share the same street as, like, lions crocodiles and everything else so their only choice is violence <laughs> yes yeah and it's true <laughs> but <laughs> i i just love the promo well, I, do, I do also love the thing of just like you're just there and you have some more joe and you just go yeah fat joe <laughs> I love maybe fun. he's just a, maybe he is just a really big fan of fat joe i don't know 
possibly. I just love the look on Mike today's face when he said it. He goes, well, whoa, well, Joe's been undefeated this entire time. He's the undefeated Samoan submission machine. He said, oh, shut up. I know it. You know it. Don West sure as hell knows it. That he's fat Joe. He's been spending too much time with Steiner. <laughs> <laughs> he absolutely has. But it was shortly after this that Brown just kind of saw the writing on the wall, saw that he's kind of his star slightly diminished and he wasn't looking like he was ever going to come back or at least get a run with the title. And thus was kind of his impetus to let his contract run out and expire and trying to see if he could find greener pastures in, in the dream that he's always had and wrestle for the WWE. So, on November 16th, 2006... World Wrestling Entertainment announced on WWE.com that Brown had signed a contract with the company and would debut for their new, rebooted ECW brand. He would debut as the alpha male Marquise Corvon in January 2007. Now, I know a lot of people are going to be here and be like, that's a stupid decision and that you should have been on like Raw or SmackDown. But I actually don't think it was necessarily that bad. No. Really? I know I know the revived ECW was trash, right? Yeah. But you have to think that this is at the this was at the time when it was still relatively new. Yes. And so they basically brought him in to try and be a marquee for it. Because yeah. um as we will say when we get towards the end of it, there was a whole long feud plan between CM Punk and Marcus Corvon. Uh, yeah. That was like set to happen. That obviously that never got round to happening. Yeah. Like they had a big thing for him. And obviously like he obviously probably would have moved up probably around the same time as CM Punk, honestly. I would have I would have imagined so, um given given how uh given how just well just how goddamn talented he was and, and kind just of like to think a, he because hell as well that was also when they had uh elijah burke yeah we'll get who was to- also one who was who was also one of the big marquees of that um brand as well uh we won't speak about the fourth one <laughs> no not, no definitely not definitely not so right now here's the thing reportedly that name change marquise corvon with a q may i add was motivated by wwe's desire to have him you know with a name that they could actually trademark and, you know, make yeah, money. Yeah, as off. WWE does. So one week later, though, they changed the spelling to Marcus. I always, to this day, still remember that he came out as Marquise Corvon, but Joey Styles and Taz couldn't say Marquise. They just kept calling him Marcus. <laughs> so that's, they just changed it to Marcus Corvon. <laughs> also, I mean, I understand it. <laughs> I don't care what anyone says. Smooth was a fucking awesome entrance theme. Yes. I know Down With The Sickness suits Monty Brad, but there was something about the juxtaposition of have coming out to smooth jazz and R&B for a violent man from the Serengeti that just worked. I don't know what it was, but it just did. I will hear... I will not hear otherwise about I, I, that. Like, I know it's silly, <clears throat> but then also, like... We think uh, people were like, "Oh, that's so stupid." But then, like, in a weird way, you could kind of say the same about like Minoru Suzuki. Now, obviously, Minoru Suzuki has earned his reputation over years and years of just 
beating the hell out of people. Yeah. But like, when you think about his theme, you'd probably go, that doesn't really make sense, does it? (laughs) (laughs) See, the same logic. The same logic. Like, could you imagine if someone was an absolute shooter and then they came out to, like, smooth jazz? Like, how do you deal with that situation? (laughs) I would be intimidated. Because it's also the same as what I've said about, like, Volta and Imperium or Ring Camp. Mm. Which is, like, obviously... So the uh, for for any classical music nerds, the I believe it's Dvorak's ninth. Yes, mm. um, and like it's super imposing for like the first movement. <laughs> yes, yeah. After the first movement, it feels oh, like yeah. a completely different song, <laughs> As is and tradition. it almost becomes like kind of happy. But then also you have to contest that with the fact of the first part sounds like you're going to die immediately. <laughs> then you see like a six foot six man built like a cement block. And then you know that even though you're hearing kind of happy stuff in the back that your chest is going to look like ground beef afterwards. Mm. I think it checks out. <laughs> yes. So I would be intimidated if I heard smooth jazz and saw a 265-pound brick shithouse who calls himself the alpha male and Cubs Dan looking like a wild cat and doing all the mannerisms. I would shit myself. Yes. (laughs) So uh, Corvon would go on having televised wins over enhancement talent and some of the more established guys like Balls Mahoney, Tommy Dreamer, and Sandman before joining the faction The New Breed. Whose main goal? Oh boy. <laughs> whose main goal was to take out the originals of of ECW? The guys like Tommy Dreamer, Van Dan, Sabu, and the Sand Sandman. Now I like the idea. In execution, it was horrible. Yeah, in oh, execution, yeah. it was absolutely awful, and did, did yeah. literally nothing um, that it was set out to. Because man. What's a way to get all these new people that we're bringing in, um, you know, get them fan attention? Obviously, it's turned them heel. <laughs> yes, obviously, as, as it always is the case. It's, you know what it was? It reminded me a hell of a lot. The New Blood Millionaires Club storyline from WCW. Oh, no, it's exactly that. It was... <laughs> they were like, hey, here's a bunch of new, of, of new wrestlers that are going to be the new generation of our company. Now, please boo them. <laughs> Yeah, All it's that, only yeah. Oh it, it's it's the it's the legend killer gimmick. Only an entire stable of it, and if they actually do kill the legends, the crowds will boo the shit out of them, and not in a good way. Because the thing is, right, is that, and I, I probably will maintain this that obviously, uh, Monty Brown was always kind of heel adjacent, yeah, even when yeah. people liked him. And that was one of the great things about him because he was that kind of person you're like, oh, I shouldn't really like him, but I do. Um, but also, it's just that thing of like, like hello, hero. If, if they brought in Monty Brown as a new person and were like, he's on his own, he's a heel, boo him, he's going to do some heel work. Br- take it to the moon. Yeah. Don't yeah. stick with all other people and be like, okay, these are all these are the new generation of the people we picked for this company. Okay, now we want you to dislike them as they go against your favorites. Yeah. Agreed, agreed. With all that being said, though, at least, at the very, very least, he got a WrestleMania moment when they faced off, when the new breed faced off against the originals at WrestleMania 20. Which is, 
which is a match that it, exists. It is indeed. But at least it's got to be a really cool moment that his one and only WrestleMania moment was in his hometown of uh, Oh, his yeah. That's Detroit, yeah, that's got to be nice. That's got to be nice. It must have been such a fucking cool moment for him. I mean, the one thing I always remember from that is when Tommy Dreamer almost went arse over tit during his entrance, but I digress. <laughs> <laughs> But shortly after that WrestleMania 23 uh, match, which definitely was a match, Cole Vaughn was pushed quite fast uh, and was being prepped for the main event scene in ECW where he entered a tournament to, for the number one contendership for the ECW Heavyweight Championship. Now, if you remember, the four people in that tournament were Cole Vaughn versus Punk and uh, Morrison versus... Or, sorry, Nitro, I should say, before he became Morrison versus Benoit. Yes. Uh, Punk, oh, Punk would end up winning that match against Corvon, uh, and Benoit would end up winning his match against Nitro to set up, of course, their ECW title match at, at uh, Night of Champions, or Vengeance, I should say. Yes. <laughs> of course, as we all know, that did not happen. That um, did not take place. And funnily yes. enough, um, in a weird, weird turn of events... That would also be Marcus Corvon's very last match, not only in WWE, but his last match ever. Um, after, and shortly after that, he departed. Well, he asked for, he requested for some time off due to personal family reasons. And mm. as Dan said, that match was actually to set up a rivalry for when Punk won the title, for him and Corvon to have this really long rivalry for the title. But unfortunately, mm. that didn't happen because of personal reasons. He requested some time off, which then ended up being a request for a release, which was granted. Now, the unfortunate thing, and I'll say props to Monty Brown for doing this, and I think he shows him to be the true alpha male, is that unfortunately, mm -hmm. uh, his sister had passed away during that time and saw to it that he would uh, take and look after her, her, uh, her children uh, when she was gone. So Monty Brown stepped up to the plate gave up his dreams of becoming a pro wrestler in WWE and took care of his sister's kids. Which, you know what? Wow. Fucking props wow. to him for doing that. That is, wow, okay, yeah. Good on you, man. And Like, uh, there's, there's nothing I can say about that other than, like, I just fully respect it. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing I can say to that other than respect to you massive respect and from that he pretty much kind of went uh, went off of the map uh not just not really appearing here or there at wrestling uh wrestling uh uh promotions here and there or kind of being taken much notice of he didn't have much of an online presence during that time as well he kind no. of just simply just uh ended up kind of just doing making his commitments and raising his sister's kids uh but he would end up eventually uh, becoming a personal trainer in his hometown of Saginaw, Michigan, uh, coming up with a fitness program known as Alpha One, and ended up making his own clothing company as well called Scripture Clothing, which apparently is incredibly successful as well. So all the power to him. And of course, as Dan yeah. said, he ended up making an appearance uh, on Lance uh, Archer's um, Twitter, doing an amazing promo for Lance Archer's match against John Moxley, and also mm -hmm. making a couple of backstage appearances at a WWE house show in his hometown. A yeah. picture, a very famous picture of him and Bobby Roode backstage hugging it out. Yeah. 
So I said, like, um, I, of the things that I know is that he has, a, I believe, a small chain of Alpha Fitness gyms across Michigan mm. um, that are still running. And apparently he still actively does um, training sessions as well as, like, running the, running the wider company. Yeah. Um, and that often if, La- if Lance Archer, formerly Lance Hoyt, does shows in, like, Michigan, he'll invite him with him yeah and so like he might like okay they said like occasionally when when lance archer does like shows in michigan he'll like take him backstage with him yeah which i think is so nice so because when you think about it they probably like at that point they probably broke apart from like talk like properly talking to each other and like working together in like 2005 yeah yeah so the fact that it actually continues all the way through to this day is just like so lovely (laughs) It's, I love it so much. It's so freaking cool. He also made a couple of backstage appearances at Impact last year as yeah. well. And Impact, Scott Damore, I believe, tried to convince him to come back. Mm. But he's always mm. been very much kind of, you know, I'm I'm done. I don't think I really want to come back on it. That being said, though, for 51, he's still in tremendous shape. That's what happens yeah. when, you run, when you run Chain of Gyms, I assume. Yeah, exactly. I yeah, I I do find it. I do find it very interesting that he doesn't. I do I do find it very interesting that he doesn't. But, I mean, obviously, you know, some people don't want to do it when they don't. But I just find it from everything that we know of his background. I just find it rather odd. This guy that who who did all of this stuff to get into it doesn't want to come back now that like i assume like um his sister's children are now fully grown they're adults now mm. but you know I, I i don't get me wrong like he i'm sure he has his reasons and i'm sure they're perfectly valid it's just kind of fascinating to me no it, it is that when there's someone that's put so much stock into doing this thing that mm. then because i mean i've always just taken it as he probably saw it as this thing like well i did it so mm. Yeah, I, I can imagine. It could, yeah, I can imagine it could be of like I had my time, but like you know, it's just that thing of like, well, I did my time. I got, I actually got to do it. I had a WrestleMania match. Mm. I lived, I lived the dream, and now it's time to, it's time for me to go back and like do my thing. Yeah, or whatever. Mm. That's that's how I'm envisioning it. But so, yeah, uh, I yeah I I yeah. Same. I I fully agree. But on it's that. intriguing as hell. I'll, oh yeah. I'll say intriguing this. I think Tony Khan will become the biggest babyface in the world if he is somehow able to convince Monty Brown to make an appearance here if or there he, in, in AW. I mean, like, if he does, like, it the limbs, <laughs> the absolute limbs. It would. Oh man. So, a question I want to uh, pose to you gentlemen is this. Why do people still talk of Monty Brown to this day? Mm. I mean, I I, think... I, I've got my reasons, but I, I, my, my, my kind of theories, but I'll let you guys throw, throw yours out. Um. So, I'm probably, again, I'm probably going to go on my kind of uh, niche tangent route mm. uh, to to use musical parlance he's a bit like the fascination that um, 
conductors and composers get with um, unfinished works. Mm. I.e., there was always so much more to be done, but we just never got the chance to realize and see it. Hence why people love working on them and thinking like, oh, what could it have been? Yeah. And I, I think also as well, one part of it is just that he was just such raw talent yeah that people are like you know not even the sky is the ceiling but like spaces yeah mm. and so for it to be and so for us to look back on it and be like <clears throat> well he didn't have a title in tna and he never really got the chance to go anywhere in wwe so like what could have been mm. he's always kind of like the 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 infinite thing you know the the wrestling what if or yeah i i do yeah i really like that term of unfinished work that's really is it yeah he's got like who's here's a guy who was just getting started and to be honest and to be honest looking at his history the setbacks that he had gotten were setbacks don't get me wrong mm. but they weren't setbacks that were insurmountable mm-hmm. like like we've we've covered on the show guys who have made it to big time who have had much rougher times yes much much rougher times getting to their finally getting to their type getting to their spot on the on the main card if as it were and like and even like even like at his worst like you know like getting tied into Jeff Jeff he was still like in the mix mm. it's a very fascinating story mm. I'm right there with you, uh, Dan, especially at being an unfinished work. But it's amazing for a guy whose career was so short, how much he influenced black wrestling going forward. Mm. Mm. Like, who hasn't seen people's takes on the pounce since then there's been so many people that have done it and so many big guys that have taken it and adopted it and of course the most famous one being keith lee mm. yeah well like i said i think back to people yeah i think back to guys like keith lee who obviously you know continuing on his use of the pounce or at least he was in nxt mm. uh to great effect might I add oh, that Adam oh. Cole one was terrific oh yeah um and also just all those other especially black independent wrestlers that have had the chance to go back and look at his stuff and think about like um you know just uh things about things about promos I uh, things about promos I don't think people ever really kind of thought of before mm-hmm or at least hadn't kind of taken on in the same way, just things like the cadence and like the, you know, the sound and the dynamics of everything. Yeah. That now have like gone into changing the way that other, you know, the way that people are addressing things like this now. Yeah. 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 Man, as I said, if he can do it, Gosh, I think he'd be the savior of pro wrestling if he could if he could convince Monty Brad to come out of retirement. <laughs> I mean, he, I mean, he got CM Punk, so basically anything's possible now. <laughs> Indeed. Do I'm you a- reckon that Tony Khan would pay for the license for down with down with the sickness? Yes, I reckon yes because I reckon I reckon he could possibly get down with the sickness. 
Oh, he could. Much I reckon. more than the final countdown. That's for damn sure. Yeah, much more. Well, than yeah, the but final they don't countdown. need. Like, even if he only did it once, mm. like a one-time license. We more Europe were like, hey, if you play the song more than like ten times, you owe us like two hundred thousand dollars more. <laughs> I think David Draymond would allow them to use "Down with the Sickness." Surely, yeah, I reckon he would. <laughs> Oh, but no, this is where we kind of, um, well, we know, we know we love Monty Brown. And we know that pretty much everyone online loves Monty Brown as well. So, we asked a couple of people, in particular, who make it their kind of their ownness that they absolutely love the alpha male, to give some words on why they love Monty Brown so much. Monty Brown's career was short in wrestling years, but in that short career he made a lasting impact. He is fondly remembered by his fans and despite retiring in 2007, we all very much hope and want him to return. We first saw him in TNA in 2002, before he became the alpha male, but sadly his face persona just didn't seem to connect with the TNA crowd. It wasn't until he came back in 2004 where he debuted the alpha male gimmick and that's when people really started to take notice and he quickly won the crowd over, who particularly loved his finishing move, the pounce. The alpha male was just Monty Brown turned up to a hundred wearing leopard print trunks and a leopard print jacket. Every word this man said was so quotable. I still say Carnivore Tour 2004 every single day. Every segment he was involved in, he just stole it. And he was a fun wrestler too. The pounce was such a simple move, but nobody did it like he did it. The greatest pounce would probably be the one where he pounces Gerald Clark, then he catches Mikey Bats midair, <clears throat> gives him an alpha bomb, then he covers them both. Or maybe it's the time that he pounced all of Team Canada. That was just art. He's the man you cut to when the building is literally on fire. See Hard Justice 2006. The infamous Hippophant promo will be remembered forever. He could have a match with anyone, truly an adaptable king, but my favourite opponent for him personally was Abyss. Him and Abyss just had so much chemistry. Every single backstage interview was entertaining and stood out. It was memorable, but especially his ones with Scott Hudson. Those were just so much fun. To me, he is the man that TNA should have went all in on, and I know that many, many agree. Him joining forces with Jarrett instead of beating him for the championship is the biggest injustice in wrestling history. I still live with hope it can somehow be rectified. It was the wrong choice. Monty had it all. As I mentioned, he's the guy you call when the building's on fire. He's the best dresser in the game. He created yellow turtlenecks. This man was born to be champ. Unfortunately, it wasn't meant to be. And I'm guessing that's the reason he departed from TNA and headed to ECW, where he became Marcus Corvon. Sadly, they didn't capitalise on what they had either, which is truly baffling to me. And even more upsetting is that Monty's career was cut short due to a family bereavement. He stepped up for his family, meaning having to step down from pro wrestling, but it speaks volumes of the man he is. My adoration for Monty never lessened and in fact has only grown over the years. It's grown because he is truly one of a kind. There has been nobody like him since, and there never will be. Over the years, I've only ever spoken his talent or the fact he should have been champ, and I would 
and I would regularly share a daily pounce on Twitter just to make sure he really is remembered. Of course, I must mention that Monty Brown believes in me. The amazing Lance Hoy and himself are very good friends and after I commented on a tweet that Lance put up, I believe it was the video where Monty was hyping up Lance's upcoming match. Um, Lance got back to me a few days later, which I was not expecting. Lance told me that Monty had thanked me for believing in him all these years and that he believes in me and that he knows that I'll pounce cancer again. I can't thank Lance enough for doing that for me and I can't thank Monty enough. It speaks volumes again of what kind of person he is. He changed my life with that message. To have his belief, someone that I've believed in all these years, just to have it returned is so special. To hear from Monty at all is so special. Rahit Raju also told him how much I admire him because they're friends, he trains at Monty's gym. And he was just so happy that fans even still remember him. Of course we do, Monty. We will always remember you. We will always believe in you. The man who should have been champ. The man who could have, who would have taken TNA to new heights. They did you wrong, Monty. You had it. He's someone I will always believe in and I hope that you believe in him too. So go check out Monty vs Abyss vs Raven in a monster's ball. Or Monty vs Samoa Joe vs Rhino in their Falls Count Anywhere three-way dance. That match is so much fun and I just, I love re-watching it. Or you could watch Marcus Corvon vs CM Punk. I know that they faced each other a couple of times in ECW. Christian and Sting vs Monty and Jarrett. Monty Brown vs Lance Hoy. That happened a few times and best friends have the best chemistry. I mentioned before, but Monty Brown versus Mikey Bats and Gerald Clark, just for that pounce alpha bomb double pin, so good. Um, another person that I loved to see Monty step in the ring with was Sonny Siaki. Unfortunately, that didn't that didn't happen enough, but um, when it did, it was it was it was great to see these two guys with such similar backgrounds just charging at each other. Oh, I love that shit. Any of Monty's single ma singles matches with Abyss, so good. The chemistry, so good. Monty versus Jeff Hardy in the final of the mini number one contenders tournament, so good. Monty versus Ron Killens, so good. His false count anywhere match with one of his trainers, Sabu. Um, the NWA title, ma title match against Jeff Jarrett for being the biggest letdown in history. See the amount of times my heart falls out my arse watching that, even now. Or oh, there's Christian versus Monty at Destination X, which is so good. And I just want Monty to, to return and him and Christian to face each other again and him to finally get that to get the Impact Championship. That would really, that would mean everything. That would just be the, that would, that would be the greatest moment in wrestling history. Listen, I could keep listing these matches until I've named them all because Monty could take even the most nothing match and make it something. He's special. There'll only ever be one Monty Brown. Thank you, Monty. I'll always believe in you. Thank you for believing in me too. And that is where we're going to end this episode, our very first episode of Black History Month. I really enjoyed it because I got to... Man, I just 
the amount of kind of rabbit holes I went down in watching Monty Brown matches to Monty Brown pounce compilations, promo packages was so much fun. So I, I watched the, I watched I watched some of those pounce compilations and they are choice. Oh, it's great, isn't it? It's great. <laughs> oh, they are choice as hell. <laughs> so so much fun. But uh, Underarm yeah. was better though. Underarm was better. Oh, Underarm oh, yeah. was absolutely better. You got sure. you got to get the lift on it. <laughs> mm. So next episode, it is a great wrestlers you never knew. Yes, we're bringing it back, and for our yeah. 60, for our 69th episode, nice. Hell yeah. Nice. <laughs> nice. 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 I couldn't nice. think of anyone better than to talk about the old Big Wiggle himself. We're doing a great wrestler you never knew on Let's. Norman Smiley. Let's go. The oh. Big Wiggle for number 69. <laughs> <laughs> we're terrible. <laughs> we're terrible. We're terrible indeed. Of course, with that, we'll cover promo video. We all know it's going yes. to be Norman Smiley, but I need to make it one for this because, God damn it, Norman Smiley completely underappreciated talent I was so saying. underrated he is a guy that is responsible for some of the some you know some of the good wrestlers we see in WWE and NXT he's one of the core trainers in there and there's a reason why dude was a legit talent and was a straight up shooter in his early career as well I know <laughs> oh god so um, uh, you'll be surprised and you'll be pleased Mate, to know we're, getting, we're gonna get ridden on that UWFI pack <laughs> I'm so glad that I've picked the UWFI match during my free I, selections I am a little concerned but okay yeah we're gonna be talking about his uh, his days as a shooter to his days in CMLL as Black Magic Norman Smiley all the way to Big Wiggle in WCW we're gonna cover we're going to span his three matches are going to span his entire career and I could not be any more excited for it so please do check that one out but until then I have been Sam this has been Dan and Reardon and you have been listening to the Sweet Chinwag podcast as ever we will see you on the next one bye everybody bye somebody's going to get pounced oh wow period <laughs> <laughs>